Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the Academy Award-nominated sound designer for Mank. Redden Kleiss, the costume designer Trish Somerville, and the co-producer and visual effects producer Peter Mavermates. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz. New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, light, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. Hi, Rin. Good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Are you guys back? Kind of, uh, you operate out of Sky, Skywalker, right? Are you able to be back in your office finally, or are you guys still remote? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, only projects that are... Um, kind of at a place where we're mixing and we need to use the facilities mixing rooms uh, are allowed to be back. And then with that, a very limited number of crew members because no more than I think 20 people at a time can be in the building, uh, you know, at once. So a lot of people, a lot of teams are split up. So like some the mix team is at Skywalker, but some of the editors are at home. Oh man. That's got that's got to be crazy. So I guess that kind of goes into my first question right now is you did a lot of the post work in this film during COVID, right? Yes. Just broadly speaking, how was that not being kind of in person with a lot of your team, with the Foley team, having to get notes from Fincher, et cetera, et cetera, at a long distance in a film like this? It's very complex in its sound. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's interesting because we did two films um right next to each other there's david finch's film mank and then the one before was the pixar film for pete doctor called soul yes and the reason only reason i mentioned the reason i mentioned that is because the composers trent and atticus worked on both so we worked back to back on those and what's Mm -hmm. interesting is that for for david fincher's sake it actually wasn't as hard as you would might think only because we've been working this way for a while already mm-hmm. uh, using this uh, sort of private data sharing platform called PIX. Um, and so David has grown quite accustomed to using PIX and to collaborating through the internet uh, for quite some number of years, actually, for over 15 years. So for the interaction with David Fincher, it was actually not so difficult if you can believe it but you the other part of your question about how does it how do we relate or work with other members of our team that was difficult 
Yeah. And it's hard because, um, you know, we rely so much on the eye contact and the body movement and all the nuance that goes into communication with people. And, and, um, it's a collaborative effort, you know? So when, for example, when we were mixing and we could only have four people in the room at one time, mm. uh, and we were wearing masks and I had these plastic dividers be- on the left and right of me. It was very weird. Um, <laughs> It's like prison almost. Yeah. And then it was, what was tough was that, you know, people on, on our team, like Tim Foscato, who is our dialogue editor, and she's incredible, incredible uh, editor. She was in the building, but she was normally, you'd, she'd be sitting right next to us, right? Right. And you could, David would be able to go, hey, Kim, can you take that line of, of Mank and pitch it down right there? And she would go, okay, yeah, that this one? Yeah, that one, you know, but we were doing that, but remotely through a kind of a zoom type setup, but it was oftentimes difficult to communicate because the microphone's far away. It's noisy in the room. So it it made people feel disconnected from David that weren't in the room. And then it, it was hard because sometimes she couldn't hear him or, or he couldn't hear her or, and, and not just her, but the rest of our team, I'm just, I'm just calling her out, but there was, all sorts of other people. Jeremy would often not be able to be in the room mm. uh, and our other teammates. And so it was very, um, it was difficult. It was an emotional ride. I won't lie to you. Um, you know, uh, when you're trying to communicate an idea or when David's trying to get something across on an edit that he wants to perform and, you know, there's a latency, there's that time lag, there's the, um, the like I mentioned, the microphone not working. So it really is, uh, it was, it, we, we had to kind of figure it out as we went. Yeah, I imagine. Um, so for a film like this, that David obviously kind of had a, a very specific idea of what he wanted, it's mono sound, obviously, or at least it recreates the feeling of old school mono sound. I know you're kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to being involved with sound in film were you on set at all for the production sound mixing to kind of from the ground up decide how everything was going to be recorded or was most of the audio generally recreated in post anyway uh tell me where you came in on this project and how you kind of shaped it yeah sure on this normally i do visit sets on this film i did not uh drew kunin k-u-n-i-n uh, D-R-E-W, Drew Coonan, uh, was our production sound mixer. So he was on set. And so we had a dialogue, of course. And what we and then between him and, and Michael Primer, who was his boom operator, uh, who actually lives up here near me uh, in Berkeley. Great mm-hmm. guy. They We decided, Will, early on to just capture the production dialogue as we would normally capture it. Gotcha. The reason why is that we wanted to have the fidelity as good as possible. We wanted to have all of the flexibility that we have in our modern day soundtracks available. And rather than kind of painting yourself ourselves into a corner with limitations on set, we decided to kick that ball further down the field into post-production. And so it, those decisions and, and that process of mono was really more arrived at in post-production. Oh, really? Yeah. So I guess um, when you were recording 
sounds down the line when you're working on Foley, et cetera, et cetera, to kind of really hone in on that feel. Uh, did you guys end up using any kind of like old school mics or anything like that? And did you have to go out and find really period specific, period act, uh, accurate items to recreate the sounds like typewriters and things we might hear on sets, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, we did. In terms of your first question, did we use old microphones? The answer to that is yes and no. <laughs> um, we Microphones have a very distinct color and quality to them. And mm -hmm. so certainly we would reach for older period microphones, uh, specifically ribbon microphones, because of their, their built-in distortion uh, that they, they create, which is a, a, a sort of beautiful harmonic distortion, which is pleasing to the ear. But we would also use modern microphones um, as well, because they could capture again, the data with as much latitude that we'd need that then we could further, then we would have the, the, the full spectrum to then uh, make it noisy or distorted later. Once you distort something, you can't undistort it, if you know right. what I mean. Yeah. So um, in terms of the second part of your question, yes, we did have, have we had a lot of fun uh, recording the vintage typewriters, the vintage telephones, uh, the vehicles. And those sounds, of course, I, I've been actually collecting old props like telephones uh, and typewriters for quite some time, just because because I think they're very beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, the, there's an old fan that uh, is in the film <laughs> that uh, that is in the sequence with uh, Mank, where he's lying in the bed at Victorville, and he, I don't know if you remember, but he—it's very hot in that room, and and David Fincher wanted to have this fan playing, uh -huh. blowing air onto this alcoholic, sweaty neck. I was actually going to ask you about that sound specifically. It's in my notes. It's in like one of the first scenes. The fan really is singled out. Yes, and here's what's really interesting about the fan was that David and I were texting back and forth and he was rejecting the sound of the fan over and over again. <laughs> and um, at what at one point he goes, I need this to be the Marty Feldman of fans. <laughs> and it was such a funny uh, direction because, you know, Marty Feldman, right? And the, but it communicates, it communicated so much to us in terms of what it was that David wanted. And then I found a, I found a picture of Marty Feldman that was like from the <laughs> a really, you know, early picture of Marty Feldman. Of course, you were talking about his eyes being sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. It's not, yeah, from, you know, exactly. From so I sent a picture of Marty Feldman. He goes, no, not that Marty. And then I found another Marty Feldman that was from like Young Frankenstein, where his mm -hmm. eyes are a little further apart. And this is all through text. And then David says no not that marty and then finally i found another one he goes that's even older and crazier crazier and david goes closer and then david finds this crazy photo of marty feldman with his eyes are super wide apart you know and he goes this is the marty feldman i'm talking about and i just we just laughed and um and so of course in fact hang on one second i had the fan right here hang on one second so 
Oh Jesus! So that's the fan. Oh and yeah. You can hear that. The. <laughs> God, what a weird job we have, right? I'm talking about strange. Anyway, yeah. So that. So I. I started hunting for like fans, and of course you start buying fans, and they all sound too good. Yeah. And um, uh, our effects editor Malcolm Fife ended up like he was the one that was tasked with with like, man, I'm gonna nail this thing. We, we, Jonathan and I recorded this fan, and this was one of those sounds that was never correct for to David Fincher. He would reject <laughs> it every time it would go by, and and so finally we got this fan, and I am. Um, I think he's happy with it. I don't know. Like there's a certain, <laughs> there's a certain point where, you know, he'll just sort sort of give up, you know, you never know <laughs> if you've, you've achieved the, it being Marty Feldman enough, but certainly you can hear the, the two eyes going back. Yeah. I'm literally not going to be able to unsee that now. <laughs> okay, great. Um, okay. So on that <laughs> note, were there any other sounds that David just over and over was like, not that, not that, not that. Yes, I'm pretty much the whole film, but <laughs> he's he um yeah he really um loves sound he loves but he's also so specific with it that he, you know when it's not right he he gave us a lot of notes on Foley uh, on Mank's footsteps for example he wanted to have a a, a certain character to Mank's feet. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, to all the characters, Steve, uh, he was very specific about how he wanted the uh, bungalow in Victorville to sound creaky with creaky wooden floors. And he wanted. Yeah, those footsteps really stand out. Yeah, right. You notice them. Cool. And um, so, yeah, so John Hausman, he wanted to have him be a little bit heftier and heavier and walking in the room, whereas Rita would still be stepping on the but she's very light and she you know david he would describe her saying she's only 80 pounds she's still going to make the floor creak but her squeaks are different than john's squeaks and we even gotten to the point where we started emphasizing housing squeaks so much that david realized oh no am i going to offend the actor that plays john (laughs) by making him sound like this heavy obese yeah obese fellow so then we had to reel it back uh the typewriters every time there was like a a scene where you see the typing on the screen and you hear that typewriter. Um, uh, David had us do that typewriter. I don't know. I think we were up to 20 plus typewriters uh, of the, yeah. And and it just never ended. And I think he also gave up on that too. At a certain point he was just like, well, I guess that's (laughs) what we have. So, you know, it's fun, it's fun working with him, but it's also like, you know, you get into this, you get to this place where, you know, you want to make the filmmaker happy, you know, you want to nail it, you know, and so when you keep getting the same note over and over again about a typewriter or a fan, you start to think, are we the right people for this job? <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, I think that it's part of the process. And David also enjoys very much, you know, the the, the, the exploration. I know that, um, so obviously he had a specific way he wanted to sound, but I know he's also a stickler for accuracy. So uh, some of the times when you're like, there's the scene where there wa- there's a tracking shot going through the old MGM studio, or uh, there's the scene early on where they're recording a Western with Marion Davies. Um, did you guys go for any sort of like very specific, this is what MGM would have had sounds for those sequences? We did. Um, you know, the, the most, 
obviously, you know, when you see those sequences, there's a lot of, we, we call those sort of back, back lot spe uh, specifics, meaning specific hard effects that would be playing in the back lot. Obviously, there's like the rumble of Los Angeles and, and uh, sort of steady sounds, but then the specifics to those moments were sounds like uh, when they would roll, uh, one of the sound stages would roll and they would want everybody in the lot to be quiet. So they'd have these sort of bells that would sound. Mm -hmm. And then when, when, when they cut the bell would sound, that kind of let everybody know they could be noisy again. Um, so we, we went into a world of discovering that sound um, as well as just, um, you know, the things that you, we, you would, you know, that you would see uh, in the background when LB Mayer's walking or when we meet Charlie Letterer for the first time and he, and we see him looking for Mank and walking through the lot. So yes, the, to that end, you know, things like um, vehicles were, have a very specific sound, you know, mm -hmm. the, those old cars, they don't sound like a Toyota Lexus or what right. have you. They have a very specific, particular signature, the car horns, the sputtering. Um, and then of course, again, the typewriters when we go inside to the offices, but, in, but yes, to, to answer your question there, there was, there was a bit of a panic to find those sounds because, you know, um, a lot of those things don't exist anymore. Uh, okay. So big thing obviously is uh, usually in Fincher movies, um, it's almost overwhelming how many sounds you can hear. I remember in like the social network, just yeah. like he's on campus and you can literally hear like the, the bicycle wheels going around outside. Yeah. So when you're going for a mono sound effect, was that a bit of a conflict trying to keep kind of the Fincher thing of, I want you to hear everything hyper detailed, but also I don't want to destroy. It's a very talky movie. I don't want to destroy your ability to, you know, hear conversations we did, and that's a really interesting point you bring up, because you had a question earlier about when did we decide to make it sound old-fashioned, and you asked, did we do that on set? And I said no, but David still wanted to get that feeling of an old movie, even when he was editing in the cutting room with Kirk Baxter, his picture editor. Uh, and so he asked, well, if we can't, have this shitty sound baked in how do i still experience it even though you want to keep the high fidelity sound and to that end we figured out how to bolt onto kirk's editing system a filter based on the shape and signature of citizen kane the, the um we actually did a an analysis a frequency analysis of citizen kane and realized, oh, it's got this particular limitation to the sound. And then we built a filter that sort of emulated that. And then we bolted it on the output of the sound of Kirk's machine so that we could, Fincher specifically could, while he was editing with Kirk, could kind of get the feeling of what the movie was going to be. Uh, we often call that, like with air quotes, the bad version of what it's going to be, but it kind of gives you a, uh, you know, it gives you a sense of where we're, it's, where, what it's going to be. But what happened was as he, as Fincher and Kirk were cutting and they were showing the film to colleagues and friends, trusted, uh, you know, friends and family, we kept getting this note back, which was, what the hell is everybody saying? Particularly Gary. Uh, they couldn't understand the dialogue because the filter that we had bolted on, the sort of 
temporary old-fashioned sound filter was turned out it was too extreme and um even though it was giving david what he wanted it was it was clearly not the right thing and so yeah there was a little there was a little there was a moment will where david started to get the same note from his friends like hey you know the movie seems great but what's what is Mank saying there? And I couldn't quite hear what he, you know, what's Gary, what's Gary Oldman saying? And a lot of that had to do with Gary's, you know, his, he's playing a character who's an alcoholic and he's slurring his words. But then when you add on top of that, this filter, it just sort of makes it. And plus we hadn't worked the sound, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. This is all, this is all to say, to, I'm trying to answer your question. This is, <laughs> this is all to say that um, we arrived at this, place where we realized that we needed to kind of clear out what we normally do like what your reference to the social network and hearing the bicycle and all these little sounds we realized we had to start fresh again and make sure that the dialogue was king and number one not that we don't always do that but with high fidelity sound we have more control right but because the sound is ultimately going to be low fidelity we did readjust our approach in terms of the density of sound effects. Just generally, uh, that tells me a lot about how we got the sound. So between there and finally what we hear, um, how did you tweak it a little bit more once you'd cleared out the other sound effects to give us finally this very specific tinny, but it still works sound, like even beyond your, your, uh, your filter you had created? Right. Well, we, we kind of, div- what we ended up doing was we divided the sound mixing and editing process into three stages. The first stage was to edit, pre-mix, and mix the film with the highest fidelity that we could possibly maintain mm-hmm. um, and completely ignoring the goal. Uh, And the reason why we decided to do that was that we wanted to know what we had in terms of the, of the quote data quality of the audio, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, We didn't want to have sounds that were in the weeds or distorted that we, that we were having trouble hearing, for example, dialogue lines from Gary or other characters who might be mumbling or if there's a competition between the dialogue and the music or the music and the sound effect. That was stage number one. And and then, so it w- was interesting is that we had, at one point, well, we had a mix that was very pristine and, and, and modern sounding. But then once we did that mix, we then went to stage two, which is to then apply all of this old fashioned uh, sound to, the, to that pristine mix. So it went from step one to step two. And Step two is what we call the patina effect, where we would then take our sound elements that we had mixed and then ma- and age them. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, after we, we aged them, uh, David Fincher wanted one more step to the soundtrack, which was after he after he we made the old fashioned sound for him. He then asked, "Okay, now we have this sound. Now I want to have this old fashioned sound feel like it's." inside an actual movie theater oh, wow. a large echoey movie theater and to that he asked what if we once we finally mix the film once we finally age the soundtrack to the film 
can we play that soundtrack back in a movie theater, Ren? And re- and re-record the echo of the movie theater. Oh my God! And I don't know if you know what we're talking, you know, but you know, I don't know if you've remembered the sound of old theaters uh, that have hard surfaces, hard walls, you know, and that are big. They're kind of echoey. Yeah. And he wa- he wanted to have that feeling like a big theater, you know, that was from the the 30s, the 40s, you know, where you you would get you know, over 2,000 people in the room. And at one point, um, he floated the idea of like trying to find a, a an actual theater that would we could play it back in. But what we ended up doing was um, because, have you been to Skywalker Ranch? I have not been to Skywalker Ranch yet. Okay. Well, it, when, when you do, if you ever can make it, um, we should show you this room because there's a room there that's called the scoring stage. And it's this beautiful room that George Lucas made specifically for recording orchestras. And it's got a hard wooden floor, the seat, the ceiling, I don't know how high it is. It's 50, 60 feet high. It's a massive room that you can fit a, a 110 piece orchestra in. And we, what we ended up doing is uh, we played the entire movie, the stage two part of our mix back in that room. Oh my God. And, we set up all these microphones and this, we set up a bunch of old microphones per Fincher's request of, you know, uh, ribbon mics. Right. Right. And we kind of started the, we actually ended up with 12 microphones. Uh, you know, the first pair was really close to the movie screen. The second pair was 20 feet back from those mics and then 20 feet back from those mics and so, so on and so forth. So the last pair of microphones were in the rear of the room. And then we, once we, tweaked the microphones we then played the entire movie oh my god <laughs> in that room from head to tail capturing the echo on 12 tracks and then we took those 12 tracks and then blended that reverb or echo back onto the patina mix the stage oh two portion of the mix and that's what we ended up with okay so what happens then when you have a scene where a character in the movie is watching a movie like when they're watching the uh, the propaganda videos that... Uh, right. There's like a fourth layer of that, right, at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. It's actually funny because it, it wasn't though, that... It, it wasn't the scenes where they were watching a movie within the movie. It, it was actually when we were at Hearst Castle where there's already a big reverb on everybody's voice, a big... Oh, echo. yeah. So in those scenes... You know, we had when we were in stage one of the mix, we had were really working. And Dave Parker, who was mixing the dialogue, uh, he worked. You know, we have these a way of adding reverb to people's dialogue to make them sound close or far away. And so when we were, you know, next to William Randolph Hearst, for example, he would sound very commanding. But if we were further away, he would sound a little more echoey. Mm-hmm. So when we were in those scenes at the stage three process it it became like oh my god this is like now we're soup within soup or you know echo on top of echo <laughs> so in those instances we didn't play the reverb because yeah. it had already had reverb so we made creative choices so it wasn't like set and forget if you know what i mean it was like yeah, yeah. every every moment we would say okay that's too much of the theater oh you know let's turn it off oh right there we need more of the theater let's make it louder um yeah so that was the that was the final process god well this is a this is a wild film to listen to and i hope at some point i get the opportunity to hear it in the theater um but you know even on my home system it sounds wonderful so 
Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And, you know, it's a big Oscar year for you between this and Soul, obviously, which I also love the sound. And maybe down the line, we'll talk to you about that one as well. Oh, okay, but cool. um, yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck this Oscar season. Uh, thank you, Will. You're working on Top Gun. Anything else in the future that we're no, going to you know that. On? You know, it's funny. I don't know why that IMDb website says I'm working on Top Gun because I'm not. <laughs> I'm not working on it. Uh, my my, fr- I don't know why that happened. A good friend of mine, uh, my friends are working on there, so maybe there was. I don't know what happened. I don't know why my. I, I wish I could figure out how to take my name off there because there, my buddies are working on that. But no, I'm not. I'm the the next thing I'm going to be working on is actually for Fincher. It's a um, remixing the Social Network for Home Atmos. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so we'll do that next month. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you so much, Ren, and uh, best of luck this season. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. All right. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is what you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old self. So I, I, let's just get rolling. Um, you've worked with David forever. David always, I wouldn't say David ever does colorful movies, but this is certainly the least colorful movie I have seen. So um, tell me a little bit about working with something that was going to look black and white. Um, yeah, so for me, that was a great challenge. I, mean, I really enjoyed that. And yeah, I've done a few projects with Dave and um, neither one of us are big on color unless obviously it helps tell the story. So I was really intrigued by doing this in black and white. And what really kind of came up first was, you know, you can't just do clothing that is black clothing and white clothing because it just goes very flat and you have no tone and you don't see detail. So with that said, I mean, it was starting off and having a lot of conversations with Dave and with Eric Messerschmidt, the DP, about what type of lighting were they going to use and how were they shooting it? And then going in and pulling out um, sample garments and fabrics and buttons and trims and everything and photographing them in my phone and switching that to the three different settings, the black and white settings you have in your phone or I have on my phone to see what translated the best. And then kind of having a conversation with them and showing it to them and saying, which one of these um, uh, filters should I use to move forward to help me prepare for how we're gonna look. And so um, it was an interesting thing of figuring out what colors read really well in black and white and what colors didn't. Um, how prints and stripes uh, and, you know, plaids, all that kind of translated. Things either got very washed out and went away, things looked great, or they got very, very busy. So I would kind of line up, especially uh, pulling clothing for like the background, you line up a whole rack of clothes and I'd kind of step back, take a photograph and whatever kind of popped out at me, I took away. So we didn't want anything to be distracting unless, again, like it's called for in the, in the script and to tell the story or for like our principal characters. And then it was figuring out what tones of white 
translated nicely that didn't pop too much, weren't too bright, and then didn't also look dingy. So ultimately, if I were to look at that movie in color, hmm. what shades am I seeing people walking around in primarily? I mean, would it look garish in color, basically? Well, so Don Bird, who's the production designer, and I had a lot of conversations because he kind of met a lot of the same challenges I had. Of sure. The colors that look really great, great in black and white are not necessarily something that we wanted to see to the naked eye mm-hmm. um, and in person. And, um, you know, but there is a necessity at times for you know, using certain colors. So, you know, I would try and talk to him about what his what this set was going to look like and what colors he was going to use there so that I could figure what complemented that that scenery and that set to the naked eye because you know it's a it's a there's a lot of funniness to the film but it is a dialogue heavy and serious real life film so I didn't want to pull the actors out of that by them all being in orange and yellow and you know it being this too happy jovial kind of setting so we tried to do what I was kind of calling like a, a palette per set that worked with what Don's, you know, what Don's sets were like and his, his art direction and that was like, and then worked with our clothing. And then it's also, even though it translated to black and white, it is the light that reflects off of the colors that go onto the skin. So there are certain colors that, you know, will brighten up your skin or dull your skin down. So we also had to take that into consideration. So we tried to keep it to a consistent palette per set and per room. So it wasn't like, you know, a bowl of jelly beans in a room, which (laughs) would have been really, you know, would have broke my heart and probably would have, you know, made Dave just laugh. So... I, I imagine, uh, I, I know how nitpicky he's supposed to, I wouldn't say nitpicky. I know how particular no, he's supposed to. nitpicky is a terrible word. <laughs> <laughs> he's very particular from what I've heard. So yeah, I imagine bringing him a bowl of jelly beans wouldn't go over well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so Gary Oldman's a pretty handsome guy in real life, um, but he deliberately looks terrible here. I don't know how much they use makeup, how much was personal transformation, but I mean, he certainly looks heavier and schlubbier. So tell me a little bit of what you did to make the normally very handsome Gary Oldman kind of look like crap. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a really good point. I mean, Gary is, he's very handsome. He's very fit. I mean, he's a very lean, svelte, um, sharply dressed gentleman too. He has great personal style. But I have to say he was just brilliant about... um, you know, just diving into this character, which I think that's why he's Gary Ullman and that's what he does. And that's why Dave cast him because he is brilliant in so many ways. But um, he and Dave had a big conversation about no prosthetics, no facial prosthetics. Mm -hmm. And so Gary was fantastic about putting on the weight, really putting on the weight. I think he put on like 12 or 15 pounds. Oh, wow. And his frame is quite a lot. So, what we and Gary, you know, Gary is looks very young for his age. He's very young spirited as well. Whereas people of the 30s and 40s and 50s, because of how they dressed and their lifestyles, they did look a lot older than what they really were. Like when you see right. photographs of Herman Mankiewicz at 35, you don't buy he's 35. He yeah, looks he looks like he's 50. in his 60s. Yeah, so so that really helped us in, in a lot of ways as well. So things we kind of did with Gary, since Dave didn't want to do any prosthetics, and, and, and I think it turned out really wonderful that he didn't because you can see all this expression in Gary's face. Mm-hmm. Um, so you never lose that. 
but he was good about putting on the weight. And then we did things of, um, you know, like where we would set his pants on his waistline to accentuate the belly as we progressed on the time frame in the film, because we go from 30s to 40s. Right. So, you know, the older he gets, kind of the lower his trousers go beneath his belly, so we can make that look fuller. Getting him a bit fuller shirt so he does look heavier. Uh, doing shirt collars a little bit too tight so he could pull all this neck mm. up and out to kind of have this double chin. Um, and then really great, you know, like with makeup, they did a bit under his eyes, you know, that was kind of a nice touch and, you know, kind of gave him that that, you know, alcoholic kind of look. And then uh, just, you know, making sure that he's the one person in the film that is never completely put together. The most you'll see him put together is at the funeral, um, you know, Thalberg's funeral. Right. So, you know, anywhere else, it was always having his shirt collars be a bit wrinkly and worn in, um, you know, just because thinking if he's drinking this much and it's summertime, he's also sweating that booze mm -hmm. all out. So, you know, giving him little things like broken cigarettes and rumpled receipts and coins to put in his pockets, um, you know, and just wearing down his clothes a bit so that they just really looked very, very lived in. You know, you think his character's not someone who's known for his fashion, you know, he's kind of known for his brains and his wit and his writing. So, yeah, it was just kind of aging him down in that sense in his clothing, which also helped with his posture and helped in his overall look. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. So everyone else, obviously, for the most part, looks pretty good. And you see that it's nowhere more apparent than the two big scenes at the Hearst Castle. Um, so tell me about dressing everyone for both the big dinner and then especially for that costume party. 
So for the for the big dinner, um, yeah, we wanted to show. I mean, our our story is very much like a day in the life of Herman Mankiewicz. Um, so it's not a big, even though it is about Hollywood, it's about this man in Hollywood. So it's not this big glamour, over the top Hollywood looking film. So the places we did want to see that would resonate realistically at the Hearst Mansion and at these two parties. And so for the for Mayor's birthday party. You know, it was the thing where I definitely wanted Marianne Davies to be what was, you know, the what drew your eye into the room. Mm -hmm. And she's she takes that center stage in both um, in both of those scenes you're talking about. So I really wanted to use a LeMay and uh, we found this great kind of uh, antique gold LeMay fabric. Um, and and in the 30s, that was a fabric that kind of was just kind of getting really known for cocktail dresses and glamorous evening gowns. So once we found that fabric, then I kind of decided what I wanted the dress to look like. I wanted it to be low in the back. I wanted there to be movement in the sleeves, but I wanted it to be, you know, cut on the bias and very form fitting to her body. So in that sense, I definitely wanted her to shine the most in the room, especially because she she has this conversation that's a political conversation. So I wanted you to see that here's this Hollywood starlet, but she actually knows a lot of what's going on in the world and she has yeah. opinions. Even though she's surrounded by all of these men that kind of hush her, that's where her and Mank kind of have this great relationship is he likes her for her smarts, you know? Mm -hmm. So so in that scene, and then with the men, it was, it was figuring out, because we have quite a lot of um, leading men all in the same scenes together. So it was figuring out how to make each one of them stand alone and, and have a sense of their own style and figuring out, you know, a variety of colors and textures in men's suiting so that they all don't look to be wearing the same color or the same suit. Because with men's fashion of that time, with women's fashion, I mean, there were definitely guidelines of what you wore and what you didn't wear, but there were so many more options of sleeves, right. necklines, and fabrics. Whereas with men's suiting, especially if it was, you know, um, a suit, you know, that wasn't like your summer whites, it was very kind of regimented as to what you wore mm -hmm. and what was considered proper and classic. So in that scene, I definitely wanted to have a variety of the suits and what people wore there. And then for the circus party, which was a lot of fun to, to design and a lot of fun to shoot. Um, we, we did a lot of research and luckily there's extensive photographs of all the Hearst kind of costume and theme parties that he had yeah. them every year. So with that, we were able to find images of actually what Marion really wore, um, Hearst really wore, and then a lot of the other people that, you know, I found background that I felt looked like, you know, a certain actor and dressed them that way. And, and, um, and with Charles Dance, he's also a man. And well, actually Charles, Gary, and Arliss are all very, very svelte, very lean, very, very fit, very muscular body tones. So with Charles Dance and, um, and Arliss, we had to give them padded suits because to try and change their body shape a bit. Because both those gentlemen in real life, Charles Dance, I mean, um, Hurst and Mayer, both had these bellies, these big right. kind of bellies. So we gave him padded suits and with, uh, with Hearst, there was a lot of photographs of what he actually wore and it, it seemed to me to be kind of a, a metallic LeMay uh, cutaway jacket that he, he's supposed to be like a ringleader. So we mimicked that, but we changed it up to make it look a little bit more regal um, than what were in the actual photographs. And then with Mayer, he didn't have, we didn't have any photographs of him at any of the parties 
So I asked Dave if I could dress him as the lion tamer since yeah. he ran MGM. And Marlis <laughs> was very bored about that. He loved the pith helmet that he puts on at the end and kind of makes this grand exit, you know. So and then with all the with all the other guests in the background, you know, it was just figuring out things that worked as truckies, artists, and cowboys, because like Clark Gable has photographs there is dressed as a cowboy. And again, with Marion, with Amanda's character, um, again, I wanted her to, to really shine and stand out at the party. So when Mank first walks in the room, they make eye contact because he immediately can see her. And mm -hmm. so she's in kind of a pearl white uh, duchess satin two-piece. I mean, I, I was calling it between a, a ringleader and, and, you know, a band leader is kind of a, <laughs> a majorette is what she has on. And then uh, the last scene I was interested in is your kind of movie within a movie. When Meng mm. first meets Marion, uh, the costumes, the, uh, I know you have the extras in the tacky Native American outfits, stuff like that. So mm -hmm. did you look to specific old Hollywood movies for that? Or tell me a little bit about that scene. Yeah, definitely with that, we wanted to, um, you know, we wanted to have this campy feel of it because it's also in the sense of, you know, who Hearst is and how he's kind of, you know, even though he's this this very prominent man, there is a level of him that is not very worldly. Um, so I wanted it to be this, what would be his G kind of rated campy 1930s film and also showing like his prejudice, you know, showing that's why we chose to dress the natives that way. It was looking at a lot of really old um, black and white films of the 30s and 40s and that campiness of how they inappropriately, you know, did indigenous people or, you know, even, even you know, country people was just very extreme. So we wanted to show that. We wanted to show, you know, how dated that this, this, this idea was. So um, yeah, looking at a lot of old films and then um, dressing them. And then with, you know, with Hearst, he's dressed as, you know, he's dressed as a director. So he has on, you know, a sports shirt and the scarf and the hat and a lighter, to lighter tones of colors. And then for the spectators who are Mayer and Thalberg, you know, they're dressed very sharply, you know, it's there, it's there in their, their summer whites and in their linens. And uh, so that they kind of stand out and look very regal kind of in the setting and very moneyed. And then, you know, then you have the background of the serving staff that is dressed very prim and very proper and, um, and, and, and all in uniform. So you do get the scale of where you're at and what in her backyard and what the grandness of all that is, you know, and then you have Marion who's sitting on the top who just wants to smoke and then showing who Mankiewicz is, who wakes up from the day before in the same clothes, doesn't know where he is, and he has no problem coming, stumbling outside, grab a glass of orange juice and start making conversation. You know, he's so unapologetic, and I just love the juxtaposition of that scene. So last question, uh, any Easter eggs that you buried in there that you can tell me about? I know some of them are just for you. No, you have to find them. Can I get one? <laughs> No, come on. I try and do every every movie I work on or project. I try and throw a little Easter egg in there somewhere. And a lot of times, it's I bet it's it's just for generally I know, and maybe my assistant knows. Sometimes Dave knows, or as we're shooting, I'll be like, "Do you see the?" You know, to kind of tell them. Um, you know, and then there's just certain little things that we'll put in that I try and. You know, I think probably art department does that a lot as well, where we try and carry something through to see, 
does the audience catch it? Who notices it? And, you know, and then why it's there and why we choose to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to comb through that movie with a fine tooth comb to, uh, <laughs> to see what I'm missing in there. You email me or you call me when you find them. Yeah, I will. I will. And I validate or say no. <laughs> You did a wonderful job with the movie, and uh, I wish you best of luck at the Oscars this year. The costumes are spectacular. So, uh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be a part of it. I really, um, I'm really thrilled for Dave. He did such a beautiful, beautiful film. Yes, he did. All right, Marilyn, thank you so much. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie, you are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can, especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? As I understand it, you guys had kind of a, an interesting breakdown of duties when it comes to VFX in this movie, right? Uh, so you and David are kind of the overall supervisors, and then everything was kind of very um, stratified between which companies worked on what, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really more think of David as a supervisor, and then I come in and produce it and, uh, and uh, you know, make assignments and manage it. Um, and uh, I take care of a lot of the ones that are just tech work so that I'm not taking up David's time. So um, when I watch some of the the before and after reels, I mean, this it's it's wild how much there's going on in this film, uh, in in posts that I never even would have noticed. Yeah, I wanted to kind of go section by section and hear you talk a little bit about how you broke down the following: the background extensions, the clouds, the car backdrops, and the animals. And then I guess find uh, kind of after that uh, anything else that are little Easter eggs. The backgrounds first and foremost. I mean between Hollywood and uh, the um, Hearst Castle, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me a little bit about creating all that insane depth in some of those scenes. Sure. That's, those, uh, those shots tend to uh, uh, get formed in David's head first because, he, of course, he's the one, you know, I'm, I, I rarely go to set. I, I only go to set when I absolutely have to be there. So, like, on this movie, I was only on set for the week that we shot LED screens. And so I'm not... I'm not seeing what's happening on set. So David's, he's there and he's saying like, okay, uh, all right, I'm going to shoot over here. And I know I'm going to put a matte painting back there. And, um, you know, if it's a matte painting, 80% of the time, the matte painting is going to go to art temple because it's, it's a, a way uh, Zhang at art temple has been working with us and with David specifically from, for about 20 years, even when he was back at digital domain. Um, and so, you know, that covers shots like uh, the uh, Glendale train station. There's a beautiful background there. Some of the work at San Simeon. Um, one of the ones that was actually planned on, you know, a, lot of, a lot of this stuff comes up where David's got it in his, in his head, but he hasn't really told anybody yet. And then, and then Daly's come in and then I may ask a question and then he'll, or he'll mark up Daly's after that on picks. Um, but one that we did talk about in advance because it was part of a set design was uh, the vaulted ceiling in uh, in San Simeon, which appears 
in two different settings uh, and two different scenes. One of them is uh, Louis B. Mayer's birthday, mm -hmm. which is the, uh, an amazing vaulted ceiling. And so that was talked about so that Don Burt wasn't spending money above a certain level on that set, because that's a, that's a built set uh, down at LA Center Studios. Um, and that same piece of real estate on that set was transitioned to the, the drunken scene at the end, which is a big dinner, the costume dinner party. Um, so both of those were, were discussed in advance because that would have impacted uh, set design and, and expenditures on set. Um, uh, uh, in terms of another one, actually another one that we did talk about in advance is the Trocadero sign. Um, and uh, what's actually kind of fun about, about that particular one is that our, um, our location manager, Bill Doyle, who we've worked with for, for quite a few projects, he knew from the location scout with David what the shot was that David wanted, which is this crane down shot with this little sign that uh, Way put in, into the foreground. And um, Bill, when he does location scouting now, you know, he's a modern location scout. So he actually right. stuck, stuck a drone up there and did a crane shot for me. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> of just, of, yeah. So, it, so I had a really good idea of what we were in yeah. for. You know, forget forget pre visualization. This is actually kind of a pre shoot in a way. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that was that was really helpful. I, I, it was a little tricky because when he shot it, there was still a lot of leaves on the trees, and so you, you couldn't see that much. But I got the idea, and I knew that those leaves. By the time we shot it, those leaves were going to be gone because they would fall off in in the winter. Um, so those are some of the the highlights in the background. Some of the ones that are you know further back is is that there were some map paintings that tended to be at the end of out of streets and alleyways on some of the studio shots, right? Changing Hollywood to Hollywood Land, uh, um, getting a lot. Some of it falls into retouching in in sort of by breakdown um, because a lot of it has to do with uh, getting rid of of modern modernisms like security cameras and. Um, certain kinds of signage how about then uh in terms of some of those those shots kind of going out in the streets and working with modern versus uh the old days of hollywood tell me a little bit about the moving backgrounds uh for the car scenes because i thought those were really cool sure um well the the big one that was sort of unique in terms of technique for us was uh the drive down wilshire boulevard when uh Mank and Sarah driving to the beach. There was, it's an, it, it was, it's about, I think, a mile, mile and a half section of Wilshire Boulevard, which obviously would be difficult to control. And even if we could control it, <laughs> yes. would be, would be expensive to, to dress and to modify. And, uh, so, uh, we, we had worked with territory before on Mindhunter. So we tried them out, uh, to build that entire sequence, uh, they sent their producer and one of their lead compositors over over to LA, who moved into our building for a few weeks as as that got, got designed. And they spent a lot of their time literally driving up and down Wilshire Boulevard and and shooting stills and shooting video and researching what happened to buildings and which which of them actually sort of still have the facades that they mm -hmm. had in the 1930s. Um, so that's a pretty fun one. And then. And then we we did a very rough uh, edit of that sequence, so we knew what sections of uh, of street we want. And it's a tricky edit because there's no dialogue in that scene. So yeah, 
our Kurt Baxter, you know, took his best shot at with David. And the the cut that we ended up with is actually um, very close. We actually the final cut is one. I don't remember how many cuts were in it, but I, I do remember that we're one shot less than that original cut, and the, the cutting is a little a little different. It's it's hard to pre-cut because you cut obviously on performance, and in this particular scene, it's all little facial. Uh, movements that right. that might trigger an edit. Um, so there's that, but then there's other stuff where we sort of went semi-traditional. One of them is the car wreck, um, which was sort of traditional in the sense that moving plates were shot. They were prepped, edited, graded. So, some of those moving plates had to get retouched because there were modern buildings in them. Um, that's of the desert stuff as they were driving and then um, played back on an LED screen. So in a sense, it's the modern version of rear projection, which right, they right. had even in the, you know back back then, um, and that worked pretty well because the rear projection is always great because especially if you're shooting cars and especially sexy sexy period cars like we have, you get to see all the the reflections wrap on the body of the car and everything. So it's it's it's, it's really great that way. So there's that. Um, then there's uh, the the one of the Interesting ones is when Mank jumps into the car to try to convince Marion to tell Louis B. Mayer to cancel the fake movies. <laughs> and that's interesting because, for one thing, it starts off exterior on, on a real location, and then he jumps into the car, and then uh, and then you've got that same location outside. So that was done like the desert one in that, in that plates were shot. Um, tricky thing on that one is that with that beautiful car we had, it's hard to find old cars that have perfect glass right. windows, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so believe it or not, we, we did a lot of digital, we had Olin in Mexico clean those windows, which is yeah. pretty tricky. Um, so uh, it, it's one of those things that, yeah, nobody out there w would appreciate it. But when I sit there and watch that scene, I'm like, wow, Olin <laughs> really did a good job cleaning those windows. <laughs> Uh, well, hopefully at the Bake Off, they appreciate that at least. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> so, um, okay, so another one that no one is going to notice and I never would have noticed is I was watching a video. All the clouds were added in post in uh, like the, the big scene and uh, yes. when they're shooting the Western. That's insane. So, <laughs> yes, and that's, that's – uh... That, that believe me, that was intimidating because that, is, as you see, is, it's quite a lengthy scene, and there's a yeah. lot. There are a lot of angles there, and then, you know, and 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 it's sort of. I, I'm a big Kurosawa fan, and so it made me think of reading about Kurosawa. Kurosawa would would not shoot until the sky was right. Oh, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, we never would have finished that scene <laughs> if we were reading on the sky. Um, but the, the, yeah, that was Savage and Pittsburgh, who we've worked with for since Zodiac days. And, um, yeah, they, they really, uh, came up with a method and, and tech and use technology to, to try to make it as consistent as possible. So the, the continuity in that is actually fairly tight. Yeah. I, I saw it looked like they had mapped out an entire 3d sky basically that they were then able to apply between shots. Yes. They could then uh, place the camera and put in lens and f-stop information and really get it as photographically accurate as, 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 as possible without actually really doing it. And then, uh, and finally, I know you had ILM come in to, um, to handle the animals. 
Yeah, anim- the animals, and um, they, they built this beautiful, digitally built, uh, this beautiful monkey cage, this Victorian monkey cage that they, mm-hmm. that they added in there. And um, that was one of those cases, too, where uh, you know, we went to a company. We had I, the only animal that I recall us ever doing was a hummingbird in, in, uh, in Benjamin, at the very end of Benjamin Button. And, and so I, I don't consider that something that we're very experienced with. So we, we thought, well, let's go to somebody who is experienced with it. And then uh, um, it'll be if it, it'll be easy for them because they've they've done it so many times, and then that therefore it will be easy for us. And that's pretty much how it played out. So um, I think most of the decision making probably really went into the monkeys and the monkey cage. The, the other stuff was it was a lot more static. And of course, with, with the monkeys, there's a bit of interaction with the actors, and so that's why that would have taken taken longer. Um, but it's it's one of those that sequence. From when Marion and Mank exit the party, when you see when they sit on the bench and have a drink, and then they start walking, and then you see the monkey cage, and you and then you see uh, the elephants and giraffes, and then the, the shot after that where they end up at the fountain where there are these art temple map paintings. That's that sequence is the most Xanadu sequence in the movie. Xanadu from Citizen yeah. Kane, and and and. Um, so it's kind of, you know, for Citizen Kane fans like myself, it's actually kind of a fun sequence for that reason as well. Yeah. I mean, I always wondered about the mat work they had done in Orson Welles's um, original, obviously, that giant room full of uh, things they're burning, which kind of brings yeah. me to my next question, which is uh, what kind of little Easter eggs did the the post team put in there as references to old film that... David probably noticed and most people probably didn't. Were there any other things like that that are very clearly visual references to Citizen Kane that you guys added? You know, not, nothing specifically comes to mind. It's more a tone than anything else. Like when you when you see that fountain scene I just mentioned and you see the San Simeon on the back, it, it's it got this mood that, that feels like the, the castle at the opening, you know, the, the Hearst Castle at the top of that hill at the opening of Citizen Kane. So you know, there's there are things like that. Uh, I mean, one that's not really an Easter egg is is when um, Mank is writing uh, Bernstein's little speech about how he saw this woman on a ferry, you know, for maybe a few seconds, and yet he, the month hasn't gone by that he hasn't thought of her. Um, and so that's that's more on the nose. It's not so much a, 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 an Easter egg. There's more in terms of film technology that's kind of buried in there. You, we have changeover marks that we added, which is kind of funny because it's a digital movie. And uh, which, by the way, that that's the second time in my career with David where we added changeover mark because we did we did changeover uh, changeover mark in uh, Fight Club. <laughs> of course, yeah. When when Tyler Durden's working in the in the as a projectionist. Um. So uh, so anyway, that that was fun and um. Uh, and then we spent a lot of time in the overall look of the movie playing with, with grain structure and blooming of the black so that there was this little bit of a sense of a, of a, of a bit of a doopy print from the 30s. Um, and, um, and that's something that, that is, uh, you know, it's David territory. So it's on the he, he does, he's a he's a subtle guy. Um, and um, so that's subtle enough that if you watch on on a display that's too small, you actually wouldn't actually get to enjoy that as much. The, the, certainly the grain structure. Um, this is where this is where it's fun for me because it's 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 a movie where 
um, if you're watching it on Netflix's premium 4K HDR service, you it's amazing, especially especially if you're on a I have a 75 inch uh, consumer monitor, so I've obviously watched it there a number of times, and um, it's it's fun to watch it that way. You know, finally, this quality is getting so amazing in distribution. Yeah, I, uh, I I made sure this was not one that I was going to watch my laptop. I watched it twice now and both times on a good monitor. And I got a good speaker set yeah. up, too, because, uh, you know, Rin Kleiss's sound work in this is just incredible, too. Yes. So, yeah, so you said, obviously, there was a lot of work doing in terms of the color correct, but it wouldn't be color correction, but uh, to grade it, to make it black and white. Uh, other little mm -hmm. things, uh, I know you guys had done things in the past, like with the social network, you added breath fog. What were some other things uh -huh. like that just to add to the world that you guys added? Uh, well, two, th two things come to mind, uh, one of which affects the look of it. But th one of them is that um, David, um, as, a, as an effects supervisor and director, you know, in the same brain, uses that, that effects knowledge to help make his directing life easier on the set. And what I mean by that is that he tries to if there's something that he thinks will be distracting and is going to eat up time, but he can do it in post, then he will do that. And an example of that is in those two, the dinner party and the, the, the birthday party scene on that uh, San Simeon uh, set, um, all of the uh, the fireplaces, he did not put flames in there on the, uh, in production. We did that in post. That's oh, about a hundred, uh, uh, I think that's 96 shots. Between all the between those those two sequences in which flames are added there, and so that was just something that, as a director on the set on the day, spending whatever it is somewhere between four hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars a day, he didn't have he didn't have that as an issue that was going to slow him down. Um, another one which really is more related to the grading of it, um, but is 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 a is a visual effect is that um, we. We added period uh, accurate flare, lens flaring to the to the movie, um, and we we've done lens flares with Savage for 15 years, and so that's our they're our go-to place because David and uh, James Pastorius there they just have shorthand on lens flares, and we know that if we ask for a lens flare, David gives them a few notes that pretty much they're going to nail it the first time out. Um, but when you look at the whole movie, I would say that this is of all the projects where we've had a lens flares, where I feel like we've been a little inconsistent because there are some scenes and not others. I think that this is actually the one where we finally did it from the first frame to the last frame in a consistent manner. And that, and, and when, when you, when you look at before and afters, it really impacts the look of the movie. Yeah, no, I, I, I believe that. I mean, all the ones I've seen with the mats, uh, it's, it's very striking. So I, I hope team Netflix keeps letting us see some of these reels because they really need to, uh, appreciate the scope of what you guys did. Yeah. And, and when you, when you look at it, you know, besides that, there's all, all, all this, um, Little David in post production always continues to try to improve everything, and a lot of times it's it's very small. Sometimes it's straightening curtains. There's there's a shot on uh, when um, Mank uh, is talking to Letter, and Letter invites him to go to go to San Simeon, and he's walking away. That 
if you see the wider shot, you'll see that there's a manhole cover on the road there. Well, that manhole cover is something that David said, oh, this is a blank spot. Let's put a manhole cover there. And that happened in post. <laughs> and so when, when you get down to that level, you, you kind of get this sense of this director with a paintbrush, you know, it's really, uh, um, and obviously, you know, I've done quite a, quite a few movies with him and, um, and he really is going in there with a paintbrush in post-production. And listen, we, we need to move that, that light switch over because it's distracting when the actor's standing there talking. It, it's fantastic. And, and this, is, this is the glory of, of digital filmmaking. And, and in our particular case where we handle um, the flow of dailies and the DI in-house, one of the things that means is that if there's a shot that we want to work on, the shot is instantly available. We just have to pull the file. I just need to go to another room, have somebody pull a file and then port it over to the VFX person or upload it to another VFX company. Gone are the days when I used to have to fill out POs and then put in a negative pull request and then call a messenger to move a me to move a negative from the negative cutter over to a scanning facility and then have that scanning facility put on a hard drive and get a messenger to move that over to the effects company. Those, oh, that's all God. gone. All that, all that shoe leather is just not part of my life, which is fantastic. Oh yeah. This movie would have, it sounds like it would have taken you guys, especially with Fincher's attention to detail, it would have taken you guys five years under a, uh, the old workflow process. For sure, for sure. Peter, thank you for taking the time to talk. Um, this is a really cool uh, glimpse at what you guys had to go through to the movie. Um, do you know what you and some of the uh, the rest of the VFX team are going to be working on next? Um, we don't. I, I think that this is the finally, when COVID hit with our show, we, we we didn't feel the impact that much because we, we had used to, we were used to some remote workflows already. We finished shooting in February. Um, and so now that we're done with the movie, I can say, I do feel the, the COVID effect on our little world because generally when we get to the end of a project, David tends to know what's next and, and we're often in pre-production and that's actually not true this time. And I think that that really is, is due to COVID. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Uh, I hope the team ends up with, uh, you know, is, is a contender this year for the visual effects Oscar, especially in a kind of unusual year like this. It isn't stock with blockbusters. It's really excellent, deserving work. And, um, you know, it's, I think it, it'll, it'll play well at the bake-off when people get to oh, great. see the work that your team put into this. So, but thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to talk about it. Very, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. You have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews with the Academy Award-nominated sound designer Ren Kleiss, the costume designer Trish Somerville, and the co-producer and visual effects producer Peter Mavromates for David Fincher's film Menk, which is currently streaming on Netflix. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts, and we are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to leave us a review, head on over to Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, drop us a comment, let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.